early performance reviews were that David's performance is making me uncomfortable. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends, musicians, and above all, music fans get together to break down a classic album from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We're going to give various opinions. We're going to tell you why we like things, why we don't like things. And at the end of all that, we are going to vote on whether or not you really needed to hear this record before you perished if you haven't heard this one in a little while don't worry we're going to play snippets of songs throughout since you clicked on this you already know but today we're going to be talking about talking heads debut record entitled 77 very excited to get to the conversation to introduce our hosts for today first let's play a little snippet from the record we're going to play from the opening track on talking heads debut the song is called Uh uh-oh Love Comes to Town. out of the way you have a sense of the strangeness we've been living in this week <laughs> accurate <laughs> accurate i would like before i hear these the, the the tweet length reviews i'd just like to to kick it off with a quote that i thought was really appropriate about this band and then i want to hear what y'all think it's from a man called brian eno a famous producer we've mentioned more than a few times on this podcast he said the rhythm section is like a train very forceful and certain of where it's going Then there's a hesitant, doubting quality that asks, where are we going, actually? (laughs) And that is what makes it genuinely disorienting. Ah. I thought that kind of is a good good framing device for what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Glad the rhythm section is getting an early call out, because I think that's a pretty solid part of this this group that's underrated. I I agree. I agree. And I think a lot of what they do is purposeful. But okay, let's go ahead and introduce everybody by way of a tweet-length review. Tell us what your week was like. We're going to kick it first to Adam. Hey, everybody. This is Adam. And before I give you my tweet, I need to let our listeners know that in November of 1994, I was 14, and I wore a Starfleet officer's uniform to the opening of the movie Star Trek Generations and was literally the only person in the theater wearing a costume. Now, (laughs) I tell you all that in order to give you my tweet, which is, this is some nerdy-ass music. (laughs) 
I genuinely find it hard to believe you were the only person dressed up, but okay. <laughs> we're going to move on from that anecdote and go over to Alan. I'm going to quote David Byrne directly on my tweet because I agree with it wholeheartedly. He actually did a 60 Minutes interview recently, and in reference to this period of time in his career, he was asked how he feels about it, and he said, I'm glad I did it, but I'm also glad I didn't stick with that, which I think sums up my feelings about this album. <laughs> like, I like it, but I'm glad they went into some different directions later on. Alan, that's that's a perfect segue. Because I really do think that's the crux of what I took away this week was just so surprised that this is where the talking head started. Uh, you know, that said, my tweet length review is uh, go directly to the deluxe version. This record's so good that even the outtakes are good. Go directly to 77 deluxe. <laughs> okay. All right. It sounds like we have some varied opinions to kick things off. And I have much to say about this record. This is Rob here. My tweet length review is. The debut album from Talking Heads is weird, fun, creative, and sincere in a near-perfect mix. Not at all coincidentally, these are also the words I'd most like to hear in description of myself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, a little autobiographical here. Yeah. Yeah, I've been a fan of Talking Heads for a long time. This group of friends, very generally, maybe Save Adam, has spent a lot of time talking about Talking Heads and their music. And so I'm excited to dive into the background. The audience won't have noticed this, but we actually had took a little break. And so I read not one, but two books this week about talking heads to fully prepare for this conversation. All right. And so those were just to let you know where I'll be kind of quoting from and referencing. I I reread, I kind of rescanned David Byrne's book, How Music Works, which I can't recommend highly enough for anyone who is just a fan of creative thinking generally. He's a really deep thinker. I would also second that book. It's fabulous. Absolutely terrific. And I also read Chris France's memoir called Remain in Love. He's the drummer in the band. And they were quite different, let's say. But we're going to get into that. I would love to hear, before we get into the background of the band and how this is a lifting off point for all the other things to address some of the stuff in those tweets, I'd love to hear just general impressions of this record. What were you expecting? What did you get? What were you surprised by? What were you not surprised by? Adam? Yeah, so as Rob mentioned, I am not familiar at all with Talking Heads. And really, Psycho Killer was the only tune I I knew by them. I played that a hundred times in my cover band career. And the sound that I got on this album was kind of what I was expecting, I feel like it, it is a macrocosm of what happens in Psycho Killer, just the, the sounds and the rhythms and the very angular nature of everything. But also, this may have been the album second to Lord. We reviewed the Lord album, and that, I mentioned, was one of my biggest swings from where I started on day one of listening to where I wound up, right? And I think this might come in second place. When I gave this a first listen, I didn't want to listen to it anymore. And about 48 hours ago, it started to click. And it started to click when my kids started humming some of these melodies. And I was like, oh, yeah, these are catchy. So yeah, it was it was a really interesting week for me. Yeah, interesting. It's actually hard for me, I'll say, to listen to this stuff again for the first time. And I want to comment directly on, I think, what Alan said in his tweet, which is I have one of the reasons Talking Heads is a great band, and they go on to do many other great records. And this is not my favorite record by them. It's probably not even my third favorite record by them. But one of the reasons I think they go down in history as a great band is because they continue to evolve their sound. That's what was alluded to in Alan's tweet, I believe. 
That said, and that's how I've always thought about them, that they ended up somewhere kind of drastically different than where they started. But that said, when I was listening this week, I was more struck by some of the similarities, how rhythm has always been at the heart of what they do. And even to a certain extent, sparseness, even though they, they layered more and more as time went on. I saw a through line more when I gave it a hard listen this week and I was listening for for the subtlety of each individual part. I, I think the sparseness is interesting and this is more of like a sonic comment. Everything's really dry. There's not a lot of reverb and definitely not a lot of like unintentional reverb. But again, on the sparseness comment, things are almost like scooped out as well. There's a lot of guitar parts where like, you know, all the low end is taken out because like the guitar isn't supposed to occupy that space. It's very aggressive with some of those choices and does in that way, maybe have an art school aesthetic, right? This is maybe the angular comment. Maybe this isn't the cause of its angularity, but this is definitely like sparse in a, in a multitude of ways. Yeah. I definitely keyed in on the rhythm. I mean, the rhythm has been always a big part of this band. I, if I'm not mistaken, I'm almost certain that they've talked about their songwriting style and how they tend to write from jams first and how they'll find parts that they like after jamming for a while. And I think that makes a lot of sense because clearly they're pulling in really tight rhythmic parts. And I do feel like that's been a through line that has carried, especially, I mean, if you watch Stop Making Sense, the music documentary that they did. I listened to this album a lot back in the day. I think it was in pretty heavy rotation for us when we were in college. And I wasn't as hip to it coming back to it as I remember being back in the day, but it foreshadows so much of what they end up doing, at least in parts, that I think you can kind of see where their sort of launch pad came from. I think it's simultaneously a very clear statement of purpose from the band and their aesthetic. Byrne, David Byrne, that is, the chief singer and lyricist, and he's credited as the main songwriter, has this anthropologist from Mars aesthetic to songwriting that he carries through everything he does. So it has this weird plain language sincerity. He really believed strongly that he shouldn't use words in songs that were just filler words or that he wouldn't use in normal conversation. Well, well <laughs> I think that's obvious because I remember keying in on this back in the day, but I, in listening to it again, I was struck by how often this came up. The, there, I feel like there's an unusual amount of commentary on people's manner of communicating on this album, right? right? So you have all the boys want to talk about their problems. You're talking a lot, but you're not saying anything. So many people have their problems. I'm not interested in their problems. It's just like, it's almost like a manifesto of <laughs> social awkwardness or something. Tentative decisions, no compassion. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about the government. And this is what I want to get into with the background is I think now 40 years on, 40 plus years on, it looks like David Byrne is this obvious frontman. He's such a character. He moves in such an odd way. And his voice, I think, gets better over the years. But let's be realistic. He was an extremely introverted, awkward human being at the time. He was not a likely frontman for them. And they say, you know, his bandmates talk about how he didn't participate in conversations at parties, but then he would later quote those conversations in songs. He's really weird. That feels very spectrum. 
nowadays. You know what I mean? Like that behavior. And I think he even, I saw an interview or it might've been a written up interview, but he was saying that he thinks, I don't know if it's ever been diagnosed, but that he has Asperger's or like a a minor form of it, which you kind of start putting these pieces together. That in addition with Rob, what you said. I don't know if it's in the book or if it's in sort of associated interviews, but I've definitely seen him say that like if he was going through mainstream school today, he thinks he'd be like, you know, flagged as like an at-risk student just because he was weird as shit. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. Yeah, the fine line between just being weird. Yeah, he was weird and he wanted, so let's, let's, let's segue that a little bit into the history of the band. Please continue to give your impressions as we go along and then we'll get into the individual songs, of course. But this band really started in art school. We mentioned the art school aesthetic already. Chris France, the drummer, Tina Weymouth, the bass player, and David Byrne all attended art school at the Rhode Island School of Design, RISD, as it's called. It's, one could say, the Harvard of art schools in America. It's a prestigious art school. And this band really started when Chris and David got together and started trying to figure out how to perform originally as a duo. I think they played a few shows that way. Chris, the drummer, had been playing in other bands. David Byrne had been doing various things, traveling around the country, busking with his guitar, trying trying to find his stage persona. And they came together and played some shows as a band called The Artistics. And at that point, Tina was Chris's girlfriend, later wife, who was just driving them around. She was their driver. She did not play bass at all. Flash forward to they reconnect in New York and Chris France, they don't really have many aspirations about being in a band. They instead are thinking about being fine artists because that's what they went to school for. Chris and Tina were painters. I'm not sure exactly what David Byrne studied. He didn't actually graduate art school. He dropped out or he was kicked out. I'm not really sure which, but he was he was too weird for art school. Can, can you actually graduate <laughs> from art school? I didn't know that that was like a Boosh. terminal degree. <laughs> Hard to say. Hard to say what that means. Point is, they didn't really have aspirations of being professional musicians, but they wound up together in New York in a place called the Bowery in the early 1970s, which was, it became very hip relatively quickly. But they talk about how in the 70s, it was just the cheapest place to live. You were literally stepping over bodies, like dead bodies of people who drank themselves to death. It was scary. Oh, my God. And there was a club there called CBGB. I think almost everyone who's into music has heard of this club. CBGB, by the way, stands for Country Bluegrass and Blues. That was the stated purpose of the club was to put on bands of that nature. But lo and behold, it became sort of the birthplace of punk music. And one night, Chris and Tina go to CBGB to see the Ramones. And they're blown away. This is probably 1975. And Chris gets the idea, hey, we got it. We got to pick this band thing back up. So calls David and they convince Tina to pick up a bass and join the band. The origin story for every bass player <laughs> right. of all time. Well, let's, let's add to <laughs> you that. You have a car? You have a car? And <laughs> you, you have a pulse? I admit it was really confusing because if you... Because I would see all these references and even in Chris France's book, I don't think he mentioned this that said, hey, when they started this band, Tina had never played the bass before. She had never picked up a bass before. And if you were just to play me this record and tell me who had never touched their instrument before, I would definitely assume it was one of the guitar players, not the bass player. Agreed. Totally But after some digging, I finally got to that conspicuous and fairly obvious 
fact that yeah in fact she played guitar since the age of 14 ah okay all right well you can tell she plays really even though it's it has a rudimentary kind of feel to it she plays very confidently and has this way of hitting the minimal notes but with conviction in a way that i feel like has to come from reps and confidence even on a different instrument so that doesn't surprise me entirely on a couple of the darker songs like minor key songs she has a a very specific sort of like half step thing she likes to do and it shows up here once or twice too but again it's very tasteful it's very limited right it's like a little it's like a little fingerprint of her interpretation of a minor key one thing that i did notice and this is getting super geeky and really nitpicky but one of the, we, we joke about anybody can play bass, but there are techniques that make you a good bass player, like muting the other strings. And there's one track on here, and I can't remember which one it was, but you can hear the bass line going, you can hear the other strings kind of ringing out and being like this this muddy in the background. And I was like, oh, okay, so the story of her picking it up for the first time kind of makes sense. Luckily, that technique's not important at all for electric guitar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. No, you know, I, I think another, we'll get to it when we get to the recording of this album, but I think one of the reasons David Byrne and probably the whole band, like they felt this was their first studio experience, right? Clearly it's their first record. And they didn't really take a strong hand in the production. They had worked together as a band for a long time, had a clear idea of what the songs wanted to be. But I think looking back, you'll hear David Byrne say, Ultimately, the the album came out okay. It was pretty well received and obviously got us to the next step, but it did not represent the sound of the band at that time. We didn't know how to do that yet. So just maybe keep that in mind. Plus, it was made over the course of two weeks because of budgetary concerns, right? They had an artistic mentality, and you can see that partly because they waited a long time to play a show and to record their first record. So much so that when the, this record did come out in 1977, the first line of the Rolling Stone article was talking about how long it had taken them to record an album. Like, they were already a phenomenon in New York, at least. This is similar to, like, Guns N' Roses, right? They were already, like, a big deal on the in the in scene in L.A. Well, getting those guys into a studio is probably way more difficult to... <laughs> even just show up on the same day in time. <laughs> so they're in New York. They're playing together as a trio, guitar, bass, and drums. And they do that for quite a while. In fact, their first gig as a trio was opening for the Ramones at CBGB's. They later toured Europe with the Ramones before this record even came out. They recorded a three-song demo as a trio that included Psycho Killer. But ultimately, they didn't feel like the recording was good enough. And there was all this interest around them. They kept getting offered recording contracts and they declined because they didn't think they were ready. So they, they really waited a long time to hone their craft. How long, you might ask? Well, I think that takes us to our favorite segment on the podcast, By the Numbers. Bring it on. I'm going to throw you some numbers out. We're going to go from biggest to smallest, covering a range of issues. First number I want to give you is 97 that's the highest chart position this record achieved in the U.S., and it didn't even chart overseas. This was not successful by most <laughs> metrics. Standards, right, right. But again, it's one of those things that in hindsight has become extremely influential. It obviously helped their career get moving. People saw them. They went on tour for this. They ended up meeting Eno on that European tour, I think before this record even came out, they ended up working with Brian Eno for their next three records and just growing and growing and growing until they became one of the biggest touring acts 
in the country at least. And they've over time, they sold over 9 million records, but not so many of this one in particular. I mentioned that they waited a long time to practice their craft before they even got on stage. Six months they practiced as that trio before they were willing to accept the first gig. So Wow. That's a long time. Well, I mean, if you're if you're doing a, a one practice a month, it's not. But if you're if you're playing with each other every day, that's st- that's solid. How do you get the gig with the Ramones though? I know they weren't like huge at that time, but I'm always baffled by these stories of like, hey, our first gig was opening up for the Ramones. It's like <laughs> my first gig was playing in like a fucking school cafeteria or something. <laughs> An empty church. So what it sounds like was that they were living in the neighborhood with CBGBs. They had a loft that they all lived in together where they also practiced, which actually was the same building where Don Cherry, the jazz trumpeter, lived, which means they would have ran across Nana Cherry as a 12 or 13-year-old in the apartment building. And I think at some point, Eagle Eye Cherry, her younger brother, did some work with them later on, but they, they were friends with, with the cherries. I've, I've heard enough. <laughs> but the answer to Alan's question is something like they just hung out at the bar a whole bunch and it became a little mini scene. It was not cool for a very long time. It took a long time for people to, for like celebrities and interesting people, let's say, or the glitterati to, to catch on to CBGB. So they're hanging out there. They're talking to the owner. They're seeing bands like the Ramones play residencies there. And the other anecdote I heard is that when they asked if they could open for the Ramones, Johnny Ramone said, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they're going to suck. So that'll be good for us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I dig that. That's a good, that's a that's a good angle. Yes. <laughs> Okay, I implied it before, but the next number I want to throw out to you is three, at least three, the number of recording contracts, actual contracts that they were offered before they agreed to sign. So Sire Records had approached them, Columbia Records had approached them, Lou Reed in his management company approached them. And they were told correctly not to sign because they would have signed away all the rights to their music. Well, I also saw a soundbite from when Lou Reed was sort of like mentoring David Byrne to a degree and he told him to never wear short sleeve shirts because he had too much arm hair. Can you corroborate this? (laughs) That was his advice. Yes. I read that too. Yes. Do not wear short sleeve shirts. I also heard Lou Reed accosted them at one point and go, it's pretty cool. You have a chick in the band. I wonder where you got that idea. Oh, God, that guy's uh, such an ass. Not bitter at all. Okay. And one last number I want to throw at you. They knew how to tune their guitars. (laughs) Ostrich tuning is a tuning out. One last number I want to throw at you is number one. That's the number of spoons left in Lou Reed's apartment. Because apparently they were hanging out there one night at 3 a.m. And he asked Tina to go fetch a spoon. And then they all watched him eat ice cream alone. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to leave it to your imagination as to where the rest of the spoons in Lou Reed's apartment went. I can't imagine. Why would you just sit there eating ice cream alone? While everyone presumably just stares at you. I thought you were going to say the number one was the amount of minutes it took to come up with this album cover. Good lord. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point. It's a a pretty big jump from this to their next couple of album covers that I think are quite... And they all went to art school. It's true. And it's just red. (laughs) And green. They're celebrating the Christmas season. I'm sorry. You're right. It, right? It had to come out. When did it come out? This was released September 16th, 1977. And it was recorded back in April of 1977 over about the course of two weeks. There were some bass tracks. Then they went on tour. Then they did some overdubs. It was released in September of 1977. One other thing I learned this week, 
I'm just always interested to look at the ages of these people and their relative ages. I was surprised to learn that David Byrne is the youngest person in this band. And I think that, you know, when you're in your 20s, that kind of plays a role in the potential power dynamic. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I also came across that and found that interesting. Well, I wonder if that had anything to do with the... Or maybe this is just how David Byrne was as a person, but I think he was notoriously demanding and difficult to deal with. I'm sure that was chronicled in that book that you read, but I, you know, I don't know if there maybe there was like some insecurity that was in the air. To piggyback on that, as somebody who knows virtually nothing about the band and their later work, does anybody else ever sing? Because something that struck me about this album was how few harmonies there were. I think there's one song where there might be like some background gang vocals, but there's no harmony, quote unquote, proper harmony. Was David Byrne very much like, you know, he wanted to hold on to those reins? It was just him? It was just the David show? I, I think it could have been partially an aesthetic choice and partially just a minimalist approach. And then also just the cheapness, the budget of the studio would be my guess. Because on right. later records, you'll hear David Byrne harmonizing with himself somewhat. You'll hear Tina in there sometimes. And then they famously for the Stop Making Sense tour got a couple backup singers and they have a much bigger kind of large larger band as well yeah it's like a gospel-esque cool. right they get to kind of almost like a p-funk level gospel funkiness chanting thing world music for sure yeah jesus i got a lot i got a lot of listening i gotta do <laughs> well they have four records on the list we should say hey, so this is right, only so. the first one yeah and i'm glad we're starting at the beginning so just do nothing just do nothing adam <laughs> Just to, it'll come up, yeah. In, over in the like, next twenty years, at some point. <laughs> so I heard that in the early days when they were just thinking about the band, they even asked Debbie Harry, who was just hanging around CBGBs at that time, not in a band yet, not in Blondie yet, to be the front of this band. She declined. They really, it did not occur to them that David Byrne should be the lead singer. Wow, that's wild. Early performance reviews were that David's performance is making me uncomfortable. <laughs> But that commentary really fueled their fire. They were excited by that. They were like, oh, this is the right direction. That is great. Well, I always thought his awkwardness was was a shtick. The first video I ever saw, probably in my life, honestly, on MTV was Once in a Lifetime. And I remember just being so blown away by his just weirdness. And I kind of thought that was shtick until I learned about kind of what we were talking about earlier of, of his just awkwardness and I actually, in, in our like pre-roll, I was joking around about a performance from CBGBs that was from like 75 and they're sound checking and he's just into a microphone like, huh, huh, huh. <laughs> and yeah, that's very unsettling. I, I think the other thing you have to realize, and they were doing this somewhat purposely, but they were also kind of doing what they knew, which was at a time when style was becoming really important, the onstage style, what you looked like, were you wearing a leather jacket and jeans and with safety pins, the whole punk movement was happening. They were up there wearing polo shirts, like really playing directly against that movement, even though they were sort of a part of that movement. So it's like, are they punk? Are they not? Are they the spirit of punk? It's definitely a new sound that's coming out of a band like this, but it doesn't really conform. In, in a way, they're post-punk, and yet they're there at the birth of punk. So punk. Well, weren't they perceived as sort of like yuppie rich kids? Did they actually dress in polos or was that just like stage 
persona. They did go to art school in Rhode Island. No, they were. Yeah, they basically are rich kids. Not maybe not rich, but sort of middle class. Chris France and Tima Weymouth are both military kids, but their parents are career. I think Chris France's dad is like a general in the military or something. And so they moved around a lot, but they had some cash. David Burns, born in Scotland, grows up in Baltimore. I think staunchly middle class, maybe upper middle class. But yeah, and then they went to a really good art school that it's not hard scrabble life, really. So they were like Vampire Weekend, but 40 years <laughs> earlier. <laughs> but I think a big part of the aesthetic of what they wanted to do was to not be a put on. They they eschewed that idea of putting on costumes to go on stage. It was like, this is what we would normally wear, so you should wear that. And in a way, that has now become extremely normal. People going on stage in a t-shirt and jeans, because that's what they wear every single day of their lives. I guess I'm speaking for myself, but that's pretty common, right? Definitely. I think people just try to look like a cool version of themselves. Man, I don't, I don't know what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen that guy of myself in 25 years, so. With a guar outfit sitting in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they're playing around. They are writing all these songs. In fact, at this point, they'd already worked out not only most of the songs for this record, but most of the songs for their second record, too, as a trio. And I, I, I failed to mention, too, that the very first thing they did when they got together at RISD was write Psycho Killer. Apparently, the way they got together and started collaborating musically was David Burns showed up one day. He had a piece of this song. He had the chorus and the chords. But he needed some help with the French middle section. And Tina speaks French, her mom's French or something like that. And so they collaborated on it and kind of put it together. And that was the very first song they wrote. And that's what made them think that they should continue on writing. Obviously, that became the biggest hit on the record. But they're playing around as a trio, but they're still feeling unsure of themselves. They're not quite ready to go into the studio to take these record deals that are just being thrown at them. It's completely ridiculous, right? And they figure out, you know what? We need another member. So they get the number of this guy, Jerry Harrison. This guy's coming off of the breakup of another band that was so close to being successful and is now kind of a cult band called The Modern Lovers. But basically what happened there was Jerry Harrison is in the studio with The Modern Lovers, the front man and songwriter of which is a guy called Jonathan Richmond, who listeners might remember from Something About Mary as the guy playing guitar in a tree. <laughs> and But right as they're finishing up that record, a major recording deal record, Jonathan Richmond just decides he doesn't want to do electric music anymore and collapses the band instantaneously. And so Jerry Harrison is very wary of any any of these shenanigans anymore. He's very annoyed. I always pull that move in my bands. I always love to break up the band right as we're getting ready to just like get huge. It's, it's like I've done that like at least three or four times. It's so much fun. Wow. Like the record exists. It's out there. It got released, you know, after that, but the band just kind of disintegrated at that point. It was a real bummer for everybody else. So Jerry's hesitant. He says he'll only join after they secure a recording contract. He didn't even want to come jam with them. He's like, I'll come see you play and then we'll see what happens. Right. And dude, what a boss. Like that's that is that is a balls move. Yeah, hey, call me when you're when you get that recording contract. Well, especially for someone who apparently to your point Rob, you weren't sure if he was <laughs> the inexperienced musician. Like I mean, was he even any good? He plays keyboards and guitar, so I think he is He's a sharp cat though. I mean, this is a complete aside, right? I heard a podcast about Jerry Harrison funding some I shit you not, some kind of like universal snake bite antidote 
Like some crazy. <laughs> this podcast was about snake bite venom. It was not about Jerry Harrison. What kind of podcast do you listen to? <laughs> anyway, the point is, Jerry Harrison is a sharp dude. He is plugged into weird, weird things, and he's a risk taker. <laughs> he's giving yeah. strangers fifty thousand dollars to run at their snake bite venom antidote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's wild. He, he was also the oldest member of the band, and he had been through a little bit of the music industry business at that point. So he felt like he had a little more experience. But ultimately, he does join the band after they agree to sign with Sire Records. And I just thought this was fun because the very last podcast we all did together was involved this person. When they were reconsidering signing with Sire Records, so they ended up signing with and doing their whole career with, that is Talking Heads, they asked a scenester that they knew, and that guy's name was Danny Fields. They asked his advice. This is the same guy that then that had uh, been in Detroit and helped Iggy Pop get his deal, and also the same guy that saw Jim Morrison on stage in L.A. and helped them get their deal. No way. This guy's kind of like floating through the music industry. It's a kingmaker. All right. I also read this week that he was uh, one of the first, if not the first openly gay music industry professional, this guy, Danny Fields. So really interesting wow. dude. I think Conan mentioned there was a whole documentary about, I'll look into that. Oh, that's the guy. Yes. I remember. Yeah. Conan Neutron. O for X. O for X is the name of the universal snake bite venom that Jerry Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can get a sponsorship <laughs> yeah, from yeah, them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I wanted to just bring up a couple things about these two books I read, because there's been a lot of press recently about this Remain in Love, Chris France, the drummer's memoir, because it came out relatively recently, like last five years. And this whole book, as far as I can tell, I, I do not recommend it, to be clear. It's basically an excuse for him to A, complain about David Byrne, like he is definitely not over it, even though it's been 40 years, and B, talk about how much he loves his wife, basically suck up to his wife. He comes off real poor and real bitter, in my opinion. And listen, I just I just want to say that there were a lot of headlines about him kind of twisting the knife and David Byrne talking about how hard he was to work with. Uh, Tina is quoted in the book as saying David Byrne is incapable of returning friendship, which seems pretty intense. Mm. You know, clearly the band had a nice rise to fame and then fell out at some point. And unlike so many other bands of the era – they have refused staunchly to ever reunite. I take that back. They did get together for like two songs when they got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But other than that, they've never cashed in on a world tour, which they clearly could. There's millions of dollars on the table. I assume that's where some of this bitterness is coming from, mixed with not getting songwriting credit. I'm sure every year or two, they make a really ridiculous offer for them to headline Coachella or whatever mm -hmm. a oh festival God, right. wants to make a big splash that year. I mean, what, you have 50 million bucks? You think, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Burn has had a, a pretty successful solo career, so he's probably the least likely to feel the need to do that, and he's the most necessary in order to, to pull something like that off. Correct, and I believe he does own the name, so it's not like the other three can tour as Talking Heads and replace him either, but Byrne has also does not tour as Talking Heads, but I've seen him a couple times. He puts on a great show. He's just I think he's just mostly into trying to move forward as much as possible. He does play those old songs in the show, but he's also released tons of solo material. He's done a bunch of other... He's, he's written a couple books that were pretty successful. He's designed like bike racks all across New York City. He's got his hand in a lot of different things. What What is it called? American... Utopia? Uh, yeah, American Utopia. It's really 
a fantastic performance. Somewhere between like a rock show and a Broadway, yeah, like a Broadway production. Really. This is David Byrne's recent Broadway show. You know, it was a stage show that was turned into a Broadway show that turned into a Spike Lee directed movie. Yeah, I think it, it, it was really a just a really amazing event to attend. I guess I'm just emphasizing this because I came into it. And David Byrne's long been a hero of mine, and I was curious because I saw a lot of those headlines, what was contained in this book, and if it would make me feel differently about him. But I can honestly say that, although I'm sure he handled some things poorly, we all know what it's like to be in a band, especially to be famous in a band. Blah blah blah. I really think that this book just comes off as bitterness. So it's just it's just kind of a bummer for me. I also noticed, just for your entertainment purposes, that at the very end of the book, Chris France in like one line just goes, and also I had a very serious drug problem in the 80s to the point <laughs> where his wife, Tina Weymouth, who he's still married to, said, you need to go dry out or I'm divorcing you right now. And that's it. And that was half a paragraph, right? But the rest is all everyone else. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, that might have colored your opinion of some of these things, right? <laughs> but okay. Well, and look, let's be fair. You, It's not equal representation when you're talking about a drummer versus the front man, primary songwriter. I'm not saying a drummer's not important, but like, it's not... It's not equal representation in my mind. Yeah, I think he feels like he didn't get the he doesn't get the artistic credit for helping drive the band forward. And also, and you alluded to this earlier, Alan, they weren't doing this back then. They they wrote Psycho Killer together, and the three of them are credited as the songwriters. But pretty much everything else in Talking Heads catalog is credited solely to David Byrne, even though within a couple records, they were writing in the way that you described, Alan, which was jamming until they found a section they liked, calling that an A section, and then having Byrne write lyrics later over top of it right and kind of melding parts like that together and i think there was some understanding at the time that they would do shared writing credit but ultimately Byrne took all the writing credit so that may be a legit criticism but just want to contrast that with david burns i think artistic achievement and again i can't rep how music works as a book enough if you care about creativity at all it's not a memoir He's not really a memoir kind of person, but this has this book has some elements of his life in it, of course. But it's really more about thinking about music, thinking about creativity. What, where does it come from? What shapes it? And a lot of the theory of the book is just that music and all creativity has a a context, including things like the places where music is performed or intended to be performed affect how the musical the music will evolve itself. So, for instance, the polyrhythmic African drumming was happening and evolving outside in an outdoor space, it wouldn't really work very well in a gymnasium with all these polyrhythms echoing off each other, for instance. Similarly, maybe church music can't quickly switch between keys because in your when you're in a big cathedral, notes echo out and there'd be way too much dissonance if you shifted quickly. Oh, that's interesting. Symphonic music, similarly, went from being very bombastic, having to reach the back seats to keep people's attention while they were talking over the music, to very nuanced when they dialed in the acoustics and basically told people to stop talking during performances. All this sort of affects... He he talks a little bit about dub records and sort of like the, the dance clubs in the 70s and 80s, and he talks about how dub records, to get extra low bass, it was physically, like to physically print it onto the vinyl, you just had to cut the groove a little deeper, which meant 
heavier vinyl and also meant everything on that side needed to be cut to that depth needed to be mindful of that depth so this is what results in these long dub mixes of songs because you can't put anything else on that side that isn't going to be cut that way and and just these weird and he talked he talks about a lot of things he's like the, wow. these, the context right uh, of yeah he's a very deep thinker yeah the other, the other thing that sticks out to me from the book is he's talking about how music tends to move when it first originates it's all about feeling it in your body and dancing to it so he talks about how jazz and the whole idea of solos originated from the idea of wanting to extend a popular section of a song longer so that people could dance to it but at a certain point as music becomes in quotes more sophisticated it goes up and can only be enjoyed intellectually meaning no one at the village vanguard a premier jazz club in new york city is dancing to the music tonight <laughs> right anyway right. there are a lot of great observations highly recommended i've read a lot of music books about music I, I really do think it's one of the best he's a deep thinker he's great okay let's talk about uh, a little bit about the recording then we're going to dive into the songs so this was recorded in april of 1977 at a place called sun dragon studios the producer was a guy called tony bon jovi which sounds like a fake italian name to me but it's real it's <laughs> And he's cousins with the Bon Jovi. Okay. No way. All right. Now, to say this guy didn't get it and didn't care is an understatement. He really didn't do much production on this record. In fact, they did a lot of the stuff they wanted to do when he was gone. He was mostly known at this point for producing disco records. In fact, the last record he had produced was a version of the Star Wars theme set to a disco beat. <gasps> I love disco Star Wars. <laughs> it is epic. C- can we put that can we put that in the in the playlist? Yeah. <laughs> Let's drop it in. So that recording was by a band called Meco, M-E-C-O. And let me tell you about a little Spotify desktop app Easter egg I found today when I was listening to that for research, which is if you go to that Star Wars disco hit by Meco, you're track listing. The thing that charts the amount of time you have left in the track turns into a lightsaber. <gasps> oh, my God. That's yeah, amazing. That's pretty cool. And you can actually click through different variations of the lightsaber if you click on it. Oh shit! Can it we does. end the podcast here right now? Just, just end it now. I'm going to go do that. Bye, guys. So this producer wasn't super interested in what they were doing. I should also mention that at the time he was a little distracted because he was attempting to build his own studio across town called Power Station. Ended up being a major studio where people like Springsteen, Bowie, Dire Straits, and even Dave Matthews Band yeah. ended up recording major records over there. So he was kind of bouncing between and. Like I said, he just didn't really get what they were about. He was just trying to put them through a factory line, assembly line kind of thing. And they found ways to circumvent him, either by coming in early or doing things after he left. Yeah, I I read a note that someone had recommended that David Byrne confront 
this producer and say like, you're not doing what we want. But again, kind of his personality and maybe, you know, some of his awkwardness that he instead just went to avoiding the guy. So like you said, coming in early, making sure he wasn't there when they would go in to record stuff, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, he doesn't seem confrontational, David Byrne. In fact, I think I read that Tina Weymouth was usually the person who would go collect the money from the the money guy at the end of the night that she was that person for the band. So for whatever reason, they were they were kind of trying to go around him. But OK, let's I say let's segue into talking about the individual tracks. Let's do this. OK, we already played a little snippet of it, but let's play a little more of the opening track of Talking Head 77. It's called Uh Oh, Love Comes to Town. Here come the riddle. Here come the clue. If you It's that funky nerd tone, man. You start the album with it. That's what I got. That was the very first thing I wrote. I wrote funky nerd tone, and I don't know why, but it just set the set the tone for the album. And I dig this track. I love this. This is a great opening track. Yeah, it's really fun. It has like a lot of optimism, and you know, if it isn't perky enough, the, the steel drums really, really make sure. A little over the top, but yes, yeah. That, that sunshine <laughs> comes directly. Yeah, definitely a little over the top. Agreed. Yeah, what's the deal with the steel drums on this song? I didn't remember them. I was surprised by those as well. And they list them as steel pan, but I think that's the exact same thing in the credits. That's played by Chris France, the drummer, of course. I can't recall them showing up in any other song on the record. Although it does foreshadow again, like later forays into world music and different rhythmic, you know, elements. It's a great like tone setter. We always talk about the like debut track one. You know, it's a good like introduction to the world, although I do think it misleads a little bit and gives you the impression that it's going to be a little bit more of a pop album than it actually is, because it's there are some other pop songs on the album, but it's they're not all like this. But but I think it's a great song. I did think of this in in terms of like, you know, song one side one. And it is interesting in that, like it it definitely sets the expectation that like anything can happen. Right. You know, or at least you'll learn that as the rest of the record and other talking heads albums go on. If, if poppiness in this sense means memorable hook lines and memorable melodies, catchy melodies, then I think they have a quite a lot of pop music on this. But if instead what you mean is subject matter that is palatable to the average music listener, <laughs> then I agree this is a little misleading. It's a little straight down the line for them. He's talking about love in a direct sense. And he compares it to a lot of slightly off, you know, the feelings that you get, the weirdness that you feel or the the fear that you feel with love. He compares it to a stockbroker making a bad investment and a ship captain running aground and things like that. But – it, yeah, it's not exactly telling you what you're going to get on the rest of the record, lyrically. Uh, maybe I was the only one who, first time through, I thought he said, love is syphilis. <laughs> the line is, love is simple as one, two, three. And I like had to quickly go to Spotify and be like, wait, what did he say? Oh, okay, love is not syphilis, just for all well, the listeners be. out there. I want you to know, I had baked for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was listening to this and... I knew, again, David Byrne has some quirky vocal things. And, and listening to this song, I was like, this song has just enough vocal quirk 
that that I can dig it. What are the chances that he's going to stop at this level of vocal quirkiness? <laughs> and I was quickly quickly brought into the uh, into the light there in some of the other tracks. I think I'm going to reference another quote from David Byrne on that exact topic here, Adam, which is he's quoted as saying, "The better a singer's voice is, the harder it is to believe what they're saying." See, I I completely disagree with that because I thought that he. Uh, you're, I'm sorry. So the, his quote was about how "quote unquote" good it is, but I kept thinking David Byrne doesn't emote well, and maybe it goes back to his personality. Maybe if he's borderline spectrum, you don't get any emotion out of this. And so, where I feel like there could have been emotion, he instead just makes and just makes weird noises instead of you know conveying emotion. It's definitely got more Fred Schneider to it than I would maybe would have cared to admit. Maybe not so much on this song, but on a few other songs. I do think he gets to be a better singer over time, as many people do. He gets more confident. He puts more of his chest behind things. But he definitely has some opinions about how music music works, like the book is called. There's also a quote I remember that's on the inside of Stop Making Sense, the live record. And it's – I'm going to paraphrase it. But it's something like lyrics are a trick to make people listen to music longer than they normally would. Hmm. I think that's a little window into how he thinks. Yeah, yeah. It is strange. I One thing I was struck by in going back to this record, which I, I mean, I've heard many, many times. I've gotten so used to his voice over the years that I kind of forgot how weird it is. And not not his voice as in like his tone or but his the affectations, the herky jerky, the, the unsettlingness that. You know, I got halfway through the the re-listen of this album, and I was like, "This." If I was hearing for this for the first time, I'd be very. It'd feel very jarring, but I'm just so used to it at this point. I think, especially, yeah, Alan, I mean, it's a good point in this context too. It's like these songs were recorded quickly. How much time did they spend on each on the vocal take for each song? Like these are again, he's very early in his career, so he's still trying things out. He doesn't know what he's doing in a good way you know uh so i do think this is in that way like the most david byrne performance you know in 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 a certain way i I would say too and we can move on after this to the next tune and we keep talking about his voice of course is that i think all the instruments in this band are arranged semi-purposefully which is to say they all are rhythmic in origin the rhythm in, in my mind his vocal the rhythm is more important than the melody almost, even though he does also write catchy melodies. So he has, I think throughout his career, even though his voice of carrying a straightforward, say, chorus melody gets stronger and a little better, he still continues to have these interjections into the music that just sound almost like percussive hits. I mean, like literally mm-hmm. Remain in Light starts with him going, ha, you know, <laughs> but it's very intentional, I think, and it fits with the rest of the band. Okay, let's move it on to the next song on our focus list. It's called Who Is It?
So this is like the psychedelic James Brown side of the band, right? <laughs> you don't see it as much on this record, but again, like this is another way that you sort of see a hint of what will come. I think this song's pretty rad. I also think that it's it's the shortest song on the record. It's like sub two minutes. Yep. Right. So like it. it Again, he senses that this is this is weird and 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 quirky, and it's it's the right length. It's right sized for 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 what it is. So I don't really think there's a low point for me on the record in the sense that I don't dislike any of the songs. I think they all have a lot of charm, rhythmic or otherwise. But I I listed this as my low point partially because I think the lyrics just really miss the mark for me. It feels like an experiment in rhythm as a song, which I think is kind of what you're saying, Phil, there's definitely funkiness mm-hmm. to it. There's a James Brown element. They were definitely big James Brown fans as well as dub reggae fans and fans of world music. Even back then, you know, we touched on it with the steel drum and I think like the instrumentation is cool, but I just don't really like what burn is doing here. Although I, I, I tend to agree. I, I, I think this is where he is a good singer though. And I don't think anyone's suggesting he's not, but I think his voice sounds really nice on this song. And I do think it also portends a lot of what they come to sound like. It's it's very pulsy and funky and groovy. Um, but yeah, it's it's a bit of a throwaway for me, even though the constituent parts, I think, are, are okay. I'll say, too, that we I alluded to this, but I want to make it clear that I think Jerry Harrison getting added to the band at the last second means they didn't really work through what it meant to have a four person arrangement on some of these tunes. So he's in there consistently, but this still probably is pretty close to what they sounded like as a trio. And I think that even on by the time of the next record, one, they hook up with a producer in Brian Eno, who they feel more confidence in Two, they gain more confidence. But even though the songs on that second record, more, which is called More Songs About Buildings and Food, which is a great album title, <laughs> are from the same period of writing, I think they had a little more time to arrange them with their current band and maybe think about overdubs. Just pointing that out, that there is such crazy sparseness here that that might be coloring our opinions. There is something to this, and it shows up on this record too, and, and maybe it speaks to, you know, like Tony Bon Jovi or whatever his name was. <laughs> But it, this, I think, is maybe an example too of where they sound the most like television, right? Mm, yeah. Marky Moon would have come out in like seventy seven, seventy eight, and so I wonder if some de- to some degree, you know, uh, producer Bon Jovi guy was sort of just like, yeah, oh, whatever, like I'll make them sound like this hip indie band, you know? Uh, that's a good point, and they were definitely television was another band that we would have been playing at CBGBs. They definitely knew the guys in television. And you know, they were definitely seeing their shows. I even heard David Byrne say that there was this punk aesthetic from bands like the Ramones that Talking Heads themselves bought into of no guitar solos, but that television broke that rule and that Tom Verlaine took guitar solos. And he was like, I like Tom Verlaine solos, but that just wasn't for us. But it's actually, it's a really good point. I hadn't seen quite that same connection in this song before, but I agree. I think this sounds a lot like television. Okay. Moving on to, it's hard to say which one's my favorite. Don't worry about the government.
This tune is badass, man. I like this. The very first time this one came on, it that that intro, that kind of I don't know, Arabian, yeah. like whatever that that kind of thing going on there, that spun my head around because I do feel like it it set itself out from all the other stuff on the album, and it goes to a lot of different cool places. So this is a great tune. It feels yeah, very, it's really fun. It feels very quintessentially Talking Heads to me yes. because for all those reasons. And the lyrics are just comically bland and straightforward. It's hard to even wrap my arms around. It's like if ChatGPT wrote a <laughs> Craigslist write up for an apartment well, building. <laughs> Rob, you had mentioned something at the t- <laughs> Rob, you'd mentioned something at the top where was it he considered himself an anthropologist from Mars? Yes. Right? Yes. And this tune, when you said that, this one popped into my head because it is just such an odd take on something as boring as a building or an apartment building. The line that always stuck out to me is like both very real, but just such an odd thought to process is uh, like, I'll put down what I'm doing. My friends are important. Like I'll be working, working, Yes. but like I'll put down what am I doing? Because my, my friends are important. Like, like it's just so weird. That line comes to me just at random times in my life. I'm like, yes, that's good advice. <laughs> yeah, it is good advice. I agree. Put my phone down. My friends are important. Yeah, it's, it's just so raw. Yeah. That's what I I think one of the things I really appreciate, yeah, I think the lyrics of this are, are great and the instrumentation is fun. And I agree with Alan. It's very prototypical what I think of as talking heads or what I sort of fell in love with about their songwriting style. And so to delve into that a little deeper, he's so devoid of sarcasm, I I believe, anyway. I think he's being really, really sincere. He is being the anthropologist from Mars and looking at things in a fairly alien way. But he's also just being very straight to the point about what is real. He means all this. You know what I mean? Right, right. There's sort of something to that. I heard this thing recently about one of my all-time favorite comedians who we've talked about before, Norm MacDonald. And it was somebody telling a story about Norm MacDonald, who's now passed away, and they were just saying – it was something about a review of him and that this guy, this friend of Norm, read to him. And it said, sarcastic comedian Norm MacDonald. Norm was really annoyed by that. <laughs> and he told the guy, he's like, I'm never sarcastic. I go out of my way to say exactly the thing I mean every time. And then the guy was like, "You're," to-, he's like, "I thought about it for a second. And you're totally right. That's his comedy style." Yeah, right. What's like they're conflating deadpan with sarcas- sarcastic? Maybe I don't know, but I-, I wouldn't describe him as that. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I love it. I love all the lines uh, in this. I like. I love the little. I don't know if it's a mandolin. There's no mandolin credit. I guess it's just guitar, but it sounds like mandolin in that intro. And I think they do a really just nice production thing here which is they hold off, they do the little guitar intro and then the guitars back off entirely and you get, so you get a little keyboard bed with the bass and drums and then you get the guitars back when you want to punch for the chorus. It's simple. Again, it's a minimalist band, but it was a smart decision. It moves the clouds over by the building. I pick the building that I want to live in. I smell the pine trees and the peaches. I see the pine 
And the structure, it's the verse, the pre-chorus, and the, the chorus. They're different enough that they could almost be three separate songs. Like it does a little bit of that band on the run thing. Totally, totally know what you're saying. Yeah, it's it just goes to some really different cool places. And again, there's three distinct flavors, I'll call it, flavors of the song that meld pretty seamlessly in and out of each other. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, let's let's tackle the big boy, the biggest hit and the first single they released, Psycho Killer. dead simple it is it's, yeah and i think adam mentioned it was maybe the only talking head song he knew i'll say that for myself i believe it was the first talking head song i ever heard i bet adam's heard other ones by the way that we could rattle off sure, but yeah it's the first song by them i ever heard it really caught my ear i remember coming home from i guess high school early high school and some contractors were at my house and they were listening to a little boom box and psycho killer was on the radio and i was like what the hell is this I was intrigued because <laughs> who writes about a serial killer, right? And just the timing of it is really interesting. They didn't plan it this way, obviously, but it happened to come out during the summer of Sam in New York City. No way. Oh, I think about that. That's crazy. So it lined up. Yeah, I agree. The bass is simple but iconic. I think the bass work overall is actually really nice and melodic, as it is on a lot of the tracks. I think Tina is really good at... Here, here's my take on, on the bass, and I'm curious to hear Alan's take or anyone's take, but she she's able to write memorable stuff. I do think the rest of the band gives her a lot of room to do that. Like, it would kind of only work in this band where she almost plays the secondary melodic element to the voice because the guitars are not very present in this band or certainly on this record. So it leaves a lot of room for the bass to do stuff. Well, the guitars do a really... I'd say the default move for the guitars, which is definitely an atypical organization, is essentially hard panned, playing the same thing. Drink. It, <laughs> you saw me. I drank. I had a shot. <laughs> yeah, You're like yeah, like hard panned, playing the same thing with key spots where they obviously know, like oh, except right here, we we do something different. Like right. you know, we we have a little free form moment here at this at this bar get spastic or you know you'll do this and i'll do that and that's just like a weird default setting like it's a sort of like manual chorus guitar i read something really funny about the the performance of this which was that crappy producer knew the song i guess they they had laid down all the music and the producer walked up to david byrne and was like you need to go into the studio with a knife like hold a physical knife while you're doing these vocal takes. And Byrne was like, nah, man, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I guess the guy wanted to get a real psychopath thing, but it was, it was just funny to, I'm picturing that happening and, and just Byrne being like, no, that's, I'm, I'm cool, man. I'm going to go over here now. I'm going to go, all right, I'm going to wait till you're gone and then I'll go sing the song. Go a different direction here, I think. Yeah. 
it's I think it's a great catchy song. I think all the verse lyrics are really great. Like I said before, it's the first song they all collaborated on. So I think Chris France wrote one of the verses, David Bernard wrote one of the verses, and then Tina Weymouth wrote the French section. And I think David Byrne's idea there was that this psycho killer thinks of himself as so sophisticated because he studies a language like French. He's delusional, obviously, but it's just really well done. Now, that said, I don't love, in my mind, the archetypal version of this song is the first song on Stop Making Sense, the live version, which is actually more of a stripped down version. So I recommend... Is that where he like sets the boombox down and starts... Yeah. Where it's David Byrne with an acoustic guitar playing to a, a a beatbox backing track. Yeah. And I think David Byrne sounds a little better on that. I don't know. I just like it better. But it is an iconic track. The bass line is iconic. I agree. Speaking of acoustic guitar, and this will sort of dovetail out to my opening comment about going into the deluxe edition. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about the song Sugar on My Tongue. Hmm. Uh I kind of like the acoustic guitar tone on this record, just in general. I think it, it's it's a low production element that occurs on this record. Things sound a little jangly. Again, there's no low end to the acoustic guitar. It's, again, real angular. Like, it's supposed to occupy this specific space. So even when he's playing an acoustic guitar, it's almost like it's mixed more like an electric guitar or to sort of occupy the same spot. I just think it sounds cool, and I think it's something that, you know, as they have more money, doesn't sound like this in the future acoustic guitar sounds more typical uh on later not that they not they use a lot of acoustic guitar in general though yeah i don't think of them as super acoustic but definitely not but you're right on that deluxe edition there's even another version of psycho killer or maybe it's just a different yeah yeah totally yeah 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 no it's definitely different because it's got acoustic guitar and it's got strings it's got cello yeah 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 but i mean i think i think it might be the same bass track you could with, be right. With some additional overdubs or something, that, and they ended up going with this. And I, yeah, I think the cello, it was a good call to pull the cello back. They got a cello player in, this guy Arthur Russell, who was, a, I think, a famous like avant-garde musician hanging around New York at the time. Not quite as accomplished a cellist as, say, John Cale. That was for Adam. Okay. <laughs> Great call, Talking Heads, releasing this signature song. Let's move on to... The last song on our focus list and the last song on the original release of the album. It's called Pulled Up. I may be courting controversy with this one, but I'm going to say best guitars on the album, worst vocal track on the album, all combined in one Interesting. song. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I kind of know why you say that, but I have to say, I think it's a close one. I think this is my favorite track. It has the <laughs> best memories for me. And it, okay. al- it here's what it does. It always puts a smile on my face. Just even before the lyrics come in, the vibe of it just feels so up and excited and optimistic. And then by the time he gets to, and this might be my favorite David Byrne line of all time, there's really no hurry, I'll eat in a while. (laughs) 
I laugh every time I hear that. <laughs> so that's so David Byrne. This song does remind me of you a lot, Rob, and and Phil too. I feel like we we've had some like moments with this song over time, just with playing it in different house parties and different situations. Like th- th- this is a great song. I feel like it. Again, it it sort of bookends with the first tune in that it's it's much you know poppier. It has much more like pop sensibilities. Which is a little bit of a departure, I think, from the the rest of the album. But I, I love this is yeah, this is like an all time song for me as well. I think what you're talking about, Alan, is that time. I I just remember a very specific time where we came to your house in Eugene, Oregon, Phil and I and Tom, and we had played the show, and we were just partying after the show at your house, and we were just dancing and like shaking your old house with jumping up and down to this to this music. Yes, definitely an iconic memory. <laughs> I'm surprised the house still was standing after that. Like we were we were going at it. Okay, but to follow up on what Adam said, I do also agree that this is the best four-piece arrangement. You have two guitars. It feels like there's a second guitar part that's truly worked out. I'm going to guess that the faster, slightly more complex guitar part is Jerry Harrison. So this is I don't know for sure but so this would be an example of where he really got his his spot in and he really added to the arrangement because that is super tight that it is super tight super it allows the lyrics right that are only like three lines long it allows them to sort of like circulate a little longer like he does like a little like three over four sort of thing right where where the, the things that line up at the top of the beat Call. And and the guitar line just it, it changes the call and response element, so you can just do it twice and you get a different flavor both times. Okay, great. Well, I think we've gabbed enough about Talking Heads '77. We've heaped enough praise on this pile now, and a few complaints perhaps. It's time to vote. Is Talking Heads '77 a must listen before you die? Adam. So I don't know much about their other albums. You mentioned that they do change, they evolve. That's great. But I'm, I, I need to make this judgment based on what I heard on this album. And while I won't be necessarily adding this to any of my top playlists anytime soon, this is a super quirky, super fun album. I really think you need to listen to this. It's a yes for me. Excellent. Alan, what do you think? Yeah, it's not my favorite Talking Heads album. I think there are a few that I would prefer if I had my sort of Desert Island album list, but it's definitely a must listen. It's the birth of what I think is one of the most influential rock bands of all time. And so, yeah, I won't belabor the point. It's a definite must listen. Same here. I mean, it's a really fantastic record. This is one of my, I think, strongest, you know, must listens thus far in that, as everybody said, it's quirky, it's authentic. It will turn out to be massively influential. But again, like, as we've said, like, this isn't my favorite Talking Heads record, uh, although it is, it is just a very, yeah, uh, authentic and inspired sort of first swipe. Yeah, I'm gonna second, third, and fourth, all that information. It is not my favorite Talking Heads record, but I think they made a lot of great material. They covered a lot of ground, and 
as a coming out out of the box kind of thing. And just imagine this, you know, we we touched on it, but they were touring with the Ramones. They were opening for the Ramones and they were getting a really good reception from the punk kids who were there to see the Ramones. I just find that a little interesting. So maybe it's possible this doesn't capture them live, perhaps at that time, but I think it's absolutely a fun record and absolutely worth your time to listen to. Okay, I would like to hold on to the mic for a few more moments after fading Talking Heads in such a way uh, by dipping into the mailbag. Yeah, we're a little behind on the yes. old mailbag. I always get a little excited and a little scared. When it's a done. little scared. You should be. Yeah. So we <laughs> let me guess. Phil is uh, either amazing or <laughs> a lot of these mentioned Phil somehow. Okay. Well, this week we got some mail from an actual author, someone who's really accomplished something in life. That's kind of surprising. His name is James Campion. Wow. Very scared. His name is James Campion. <laughs> He's the author of "Shout It Out Loud: The Story of Kiss's Destroyer." <laughs> No way! And he opted to tell us all the things we were wrong about. So uh, so listen up. But he, he does appreciate the show. It's a positive email. But he says, you know, you guys failed to mention Alice Cooper as a direct precursor to KISS. By 1973, Alice Cooper was the biggest touring band on the planet. It wasn't even close. That year, they, the Alice Cooper tour, broke every attendance record set by Elvis and the Beatles. They were the top and the first real theatrical rock act. Wow. Second point that he wants to point out is the song Shout It Out Loud, which I think we all liked the best, maybe. He said, Shout It Out Loud, the song, sounds different from everything else on the record because it's the one track the band actually recorded together. The producer Bob Ezrin had to Frankenstein everything else together. I think that kind of supports our claim that Kiss kind of sucks, but... You know, I think I think the tone of our show was that we were pleasantly surprised by Kiss, even though they, they didn't always yeah, hit the mark. Yeah. And then the last thing he wanted to point out was that Eddie Van Halen never auditioned for Kiss. Now, oh, okay. I was actually texting with Tom about this, who hosted that episode. And there's a, there's a little point of contention here. I think that James might be taking issue with the word audition, because I did do a little digging myself to corroborate. And it does sound like Eddie Van Halen considered joining Kiss, at least for some period of time or some tour. I don't think he necessarily had to audition for them at any point, meaning that there was a gate keeper to him joining that band they would have to audition for him correct i feel like that's <laughs> and i think he was five albums into his career so he was the, well the quote i saw it's possible it's apocryphal but the quote i saw from gene simmons talking about this was that eddie van halen maybe drunk or something you know saw him out and said hey i'd love to come join the band now that ace freely's gone and gene simmons said you can't leave your band it's called van halen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In any case, we thank you, James, for writing in. We appreciate hearing from someone. Obviously, we only have one week to research these bands. We're not deeply invested. Right. You know, we can only do so much. So we appreciate the corrections and the context that comes from the deep research that you've, you've clearly done. Uh, check out James Campion's book, Shout It Out Loud, The Story of Kisses Destroyer. I guess especially if you disagree with us and want to, want to learn more about the Kiss phenomenon. I do have one more from Rob from the UK writes, stumbled upon your podcast while looking for new music and your episode on the Mars Volta came up and it's promoted me to take a journey through all these albums and listen to the episodes as I do. 
Your observations make me laugh and provide insights. After listening to the Mars Volta, I went to the very beginning and I found some gems along the way. Highlights. I love the commentary of the absurdity that is non-British British band Sparks. Yes. Second point, he wants to make clear that not all Brits love Prodigy. (laughs) Uh, I would hope not all of anybody likes Prodigy. (laughs) And lastly, he says, I'm also a big Bowie fan. I don't know if any of the Berlin trilogy is on the list. Well, it turns out that Heroes and Low are both on the 1001 list. Those are both from the Berlin trilogy, the ones he made in Berlin with Brian Eno. But Rob from UK goes on to say, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on whether they are actually Bowie albums or Eno albums. I wrote a very unconvincing dissertation on it back in the day. And I think I wrote 10,000 words just to get to the point that albums should be accredited to both parties. It's an interesting point. I'll just say as a starting point that as in the case of Talking Head 77, like this word producer, it can mean a lot of different things. So it really depends on what level of influence they have or don't have. A lot of people are credited as producer and probably don't deserve any real sincere accreditation for the creativity, but others do. So I guess we'll deal with that when we get to those Bowie records. Nice. Thanks for writing. Love to hear more when we get to those Berlin trilogies. Since you did write that dissertation, you've obviously thought about it quite a lot. And again, we love when you guys write in, tell us whatever, tell us what you disagree with, tell us uh, what we missed, what we're missing, the context of having lived through some of this material, or if you've done deep research or if this is your favorite band. That's always going to help us learn. That's why we're doing the podcast. Write us anytime at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. And last but not least, our last order of business is to decide, nay, see what our homework shall be. <laughs> Shh, Rob, you said the quiet part loud in the left. <laughs> I have the Albinator here in my possession on loan from Tom, our, our, good, our good fellow. Today, it's, uh, it's wearing an oversized suit for some reason, and we're going <laughs> to... Huge shoulder pads, just re- remarkable. We're going to give it a spin and see what we're going to be listening to this week. So, without further ado, drum roll, please. Next week, we shall be listening to... The artist is Missy Elliott, and the record is Under Construction. What year is that? I, I know nothing about Missy Elliott. Probably like 2000. I'm going to guess I'm gonna guess 96. I do not know the answer. Oh. <laughs> well, we'll find out. Looking forward to that one. Hope you listen along with us to Missy Elliott's Under Construction so you can follow along with us next week. We'll be back then with some more entertainment for you. And we're going to close out the show now. So for 1001 Album Complaints, I've been Rob. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. And I'm Phil. Boo-shoo, is it boo-shoo?